Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast, episode 11. Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Russell. This podcast aims to educate you about outdoor living skills, give you a first-person approach to wilderness ecology, and provide you with a glimpse into the different methods people are using for sustainable living. To find out more about our programs, please visit schoolotheforest.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. It seems like I am getting better at doing these uh, consistently. It's been uh, less than a month since the last one, which is an improvement from the last time. I'm uh, sitting virtually with Jenna Roselle, who um, has been on the podcast with Tim Smith on the Jack Mountain one, but I figured we'd bring her on here and um, see how things she's been since then. How are you doing, Jenna? I'm great. Thanks for Good. having me. Yeah, it's exciting. It's this is kind of the the most like sociability I've been getting all winter because of all the COVID stuff. So interacting yeah, with people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a nice little change of pace for sure. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit of today about kind of your, your life really, which seems to be kind of revolving around foraging, hunting and fishing. How did you, how did you get into that? And tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Um, okay. Well, I'm currently sitting in my ice shack at my home in, uh, southwestern Maine, where I've been homesteading here for, geez, I think we've been here about five years now, but I'm born and raised in Maine, um, originally southern Maine, but then um, had my first try at homesteading up and down east, and um, yeah, I guess that's where, well, let's see, the foraging began, at least the awareness of foraging began real early because my mom is an herbalist. She's always been an herbalist. Um, so I guess I was gifted by her, not really any formal training, but um, at least the awareness at an early age that, you know, plants aren't just like a backdrop. They're like living things that people have, you know, very deep relationships with and they have all kinds of functions and in the in the environment and in our bodies and whatever and um so yeah that just really that's always just been really fascinating to me and really comforting and like you know yeah so it stuck and um you know i didn't do much with it in my in my younger years you know high school, college, didn't really care about it much, but came back to it in earnest when we were um, homesteading up and down east. And um, I think it came from a place mostly of just like, of curiosity about, um, you know, trying to learn about where I was because I was in this new place. And though like it was still the state of Maine but, you know, I don't know if you've ever been up in that area, but it's a very different feeling than, than Southern Maine. Um, so I felt like I was like in a whole new world. And so, you know, not having, um, you know, the internet or things like that, I just, I just started reading a lot and walking around a lot and learning about where I was. And um, all of that learning kind of led to a lot of realizations of, 
oh that's edible that's edible too that's edible too like and you know <laughs> um and so it seemed silly to not begin to utilize some of these things that I was learning and so yeah it started out um as just being curious about where I was and then that led to it being a really enjoyable hobby and then that led to it being um a lifestyle pretty quickly and then from there you know I started sharing what I was gathering and then um you know with friends and family and then I started selling at farmers markets and then selling to chefs and then um and then that kind of evolved into teaching years down the road you know people were very interested in what I was offering and they wanted to know more and so then after you know a number of years went by I felt like okay I know enough where I feel comfortable sharing this and so then I started teaching and I'm still currently teaching um and then that has also kind of evolved into I well I guess it was kind of like an evolution of of my relationship with the plants starting out as like a collector and like a learner and then as a teacher um and now um and now here on the homestead we're starting like a plant nursery and so now we're getting into like cultivating and growing the plants and giving them back to the community in hopes of people growing more themselves that sounds awesome. And you do a lot of, like I said before, you do a lot of hunting and fishing. Was that always part of it too? Or was that a kind of a recent growth? Um, it was not always part of it. I did not grow up as a hunter or a fisher. Um, yeah, that was a much more, ugh, it, that was a less, <laughs> a less organic fit for me um than than with plants um i had to really i made that i made that decision very intentionally and it was a difficult decision and it, you know sometimes continues to be a difficult decision um if but it is yeah, you shouldn't be doing I'm, it i think right yeah uh, yeah <laughs> um but yeah i started i started hunting and fishing in my mid 20s um and yeah like i said it wasn't an easy decision um you know i i kind of grew up i didn't grow up with many hunters in my life and um i, I wouldn't say that i was an anti-hunter but i did not think that i could be a hunter and i didn't think that i wanted to be a hunter um until i really started you know, making informed and conscious decisions about where my food was coming from. And like once you, you and realizing that I'm not a vegetarian, you know, I tried that, but I'm not. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I guess a lot of self-scrutinizing and making informed decisions about how I'm going to feed myself kind of led to well I think I think the best way for me to do this is to do it myself <laughs> and um 
I'm still not very good at it, but I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> well, I, I, if you got to have one of them, it, I'd rather enjoy it than be good at it, I think, you know, rather than just, <laughs> well, it's true, yeah. rather than just turning it into like a, uh, like a processing plant almost, you know, where you can go out and you know you can accomplish it. Um, yeah, I think if you're if you're at least enjoying it, then you're kind of giving the process a little bit of respect, you know. Maybe that's yeah. just me, but um, so you have this thing on your website about uh, aiming to erase this imaginary line between human beings and the environment. Where did that? That seems like a very specific phrase that you've chosen, and I'd be really curious where that where that line sort of became blurred for you. Um, yeah, I think that that I think I was kind of I kept bumping into what I thought was that line, I guess when when I was homesteading um, for the first time, I think I, I came from a life of, you know, the majority of my childhood and younger years, um, really believing in like the leave no trace ethic and, you know, kind of with like a deep seated belief that any human impact was inherently bad impact. And, um, and I just found I and and kept finding as I was trying to live kind of self sufficiently quote off of the land that um, it's not really possible to separate yourself and to have no impact. Um, you know, you're just forced with these daily decisions of like, okay, well, I say I need to heat my home um, in order to survive. What are my choices? My choices are I cut down trees myself and I have this impact that I have to do and look at and live with, or I, you know, choose fossil fuels and stick my head in the sand and I choose not to look at the impacts that are still happening just happening somewhere else or I die you know those are the choices <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I, I didn't really like any of them I still don't like many of them <laughs> sure um so yeah I guess I guess I found that like the more the more I tried to remove myself and have no impact, um, I was actually doing more harm that way. And then if I went in the other direction and was informed and thoughtful about what my impacts were, then there could be, you know, a mutually beneficial relationship with my place. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at now. Yeah, I think that's great. I love the idea of it being sort of a the modern world. It's it's kind of uh, it's all the impact is displaced. You know, people that a lot of like the leave no trace diehards end up 
you know, they bring out the gas canisters and stuff like that. So the, the impact is still there. They just don't have to see it. And so like, yeah. it's sort of a, a responsibility that has to get taken on to, to kind of acknowledge your impact and try to minimize it as much as you can in your own space, which I think is, it sounds like exactly what you're trying to do, which is great. That's awesome. I love I, the, the phrase itself just really kind of stuck with me. Just this, this kind of, when we do our long-term programs, our students come up and they all kind of have these moments where they kind of come home to being in the woods. And, uh, and I think that's what it is. It's where that imaginary line goes away. And that's, yeah, I really enjoyed, uh, and it feels good, right? Oh, it's awesome. It feels like, yeah, it's like being home, you know, like you were always supposed to be there, which is, which is not something a lot of people yeah. in the modern world feel in the outdoors anyway. The outdoors is portrayed right. as this big, scary thing, um, but it isn't. We're supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I can be a little rambly and long-winded here, so we'll move on to the next, we'll move on to the next okay. thing. Um, Follow you. <laughs> that's a terrible decision, I promise you. Um, <laughs> so, uh I'd love to hear a little bit about your, you know, you mentioned that you're getting into or have been teaching a lot of this stuff. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your take on the sort of the responsibility that comes along with that, because, you know, I had a, a friend of mine, Jackie Stratton on a while ago, who's a guide and was talking about how, you know, being a woman and starting to guide was sort of, it does, there's not a lot of other sort of role models to look for, for that. And so I would be curious to hear like, your take on the responsibility for passing these on to, you know, not just other women, but other people in general and letting people kind of see people other than essentially people that don't look like me teaching this stuff, which is kind of, it's pretty blanketed with that, you know? So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of that. Cool. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I'm, I shy away from the word responsibility a little bit because I, I feel like that implies, I don't know, that that I have some lofty, like, save the worldy kind of goals in my teaching. And I really don't, um, you know, if I'm honest, a lot of the reason why I do it is selfish it's because it it allows me to do what I like to do more often <laughs> um but I will say that well something that comes to mind here is um do you know Arthur Haynes I know of him he was speaking once about um about his diet and about, you know, his beliefs about diet and, and eating, um, eating like seasonally and locally. Um, and if you're doing that, you kind of have a built-in diversity. And a phrase that he said that really stuck with me is diversity equals sufficiency. And he was talking about diet, but I've kind of 
you can extrapolate that like all over the place. And I feel like that's so true. And almost anything we do, you know, whether it's diet or community or uh, your ecosystem or politics or experiences, you know, like, like almost, almost anything you can think of is not going to be successful unless there's some amount of diversity. And so I guess like when it comes to the outdoors and, and teaching in the outdoors, like, yeah, I, I teach what I teach and that tends to be um, focused on food, but I think what we need is for everybody to find what they love, their, their thing that they love about the outdoors and share that because like food, sure, everybody has to eat, but not everybody really cares about food as much as I do and I don't expect them to, um, but everybody cares about something and you, you can probably find some element of what you care about in the outdoors and if people can just find that thing that they love, whether it be, you know, soil biology or birds or fire starting or, you know what I mean? Like there's an infinite amount of things to, to care about um, and find the thing you care about and then share it, I guess. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I particularly like the diversity and efficiency thing. That's, I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more because that's, yeah, something that could definitely, I mean, we see it all the time on our programs is if it's, if it's, you know, if like the gender or age split is too heavy in one direction or the other, they're hard to run. But when it's, when it's kind of a, an equal playing field, we, we don't even really have to do anything other than show them the cool stuff, yeah. right? It just kind of works itself out, which is probably because yeah. that's how human beings are supposed to exist rather than in one big group or the other. Yeah. So we're kind of, you know, we've been talking about you doing a lot of this uh, kind of teaching and how you got into this, but you have a pretty, you know, you do a lot of writing for, uh, for, or for backcountry, is it backcountry hunters and anglers? Is that the organization yeah. you're a part of? I had it written yeah. down and now I can't find it. Um, but so you write for them and then you take some, some pretty incredible photographs and pair them with these words about your experiences in the outdoors, which, you know, most of the time, if people are looking at pictures of stuff online, it's a really doctored image with just facts with it. And you put a lot of poetry into, into whatever it is you're doing to the point that, you know, sometimes it, it, the poetry isn't even about the experience itself or isn't readily apparently that way. And I think that that's super interesting. And I think that it draws a lot of people in. And I'd be curious why, why that's such a, a big part of how you present this outdoor stuff that you clearly love so much. <laughs> why? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> that's okay. That's a, that's a. I, I think it's just, I think, um, that's i've i've just i've always 
been drawn to writing, I think. And I'm, I'm, it's weird that, like, it's weird and a little, like, off-putting and shameful that, like, social media is such a great venue for that. <laughs> but it is. Um, and so, yeah. Um, it was never, it was never really an intentional thing. Like I didn't set out with a goal to do what I'm doing or share what I'm sharing in the way that I'm sharing it. It's just kind of the way that it comes out. And like Instagram just makes it so easy to put those things together, the images and the words. And I have a real love hate relationship with that. But right now it's like, it's working for me. And, um, and yeah, it, I, I've made a lot of great connections with actual people um, because of, you know, my ability to do that on that platform. And so I'm milking it for what it's given me right now. And um, if I find a better way to do it in the future, I will. But um, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer as to why I choose to present things the way that I present them other than that's how they appear to me and then I just share it that way yeah well it's just in so I was homeschooled and and through that I uh received sort of what people nicely refer to as a classical education which means that I'm terrible at math and most of the like hard sciences um exactly um but in getting that education I was exposed to a lot of these sort of uh, like natural philosophers is what they refer to them as people like uh, Thomas Jefferson and Da Vinci. And they weren't, they weren't scientists by any means, but they had this ability to uh, spend time looking at the natural world and then boil it down into, you know, with Da Vinci, obviously it was his drawings and stuff like that. But if you look at sort of all the romantic poets, they, they drew so heavily from the outdoors. And I just, I, I, I'm always fascinated by seeing little hints of that show back up in the modern world, which is obsessed with like the facts of what is happening rather than the poetry that goes along with it. And at, you know, I've been working in this industry for a while and I don't often run into a lot of people that present their experiences in the outdoors poetically the way that you do. And I think that's fascinating. I wish more people did it because it, um, you know, it's great to look at a picture of a bird, but I don't really care how much the bird weighs. You know, I would much, I would much, I, you know, I, like it's good. It's good trivia to know, but I'm more interested in what, in what the, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. What the bird is, not what it, what it like breaks down into in its component parts, which is maybe a little bit wordy, but that's all right. <laughs> so I'd be curious to hear about your thoughts on that. No, there... Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, I think that maybe not everybody presents what they experience in the outdoors in like, in poetry or a, like artfully done photographs or whatever, but I would imagine 
that their experience, their internal experience, probably had some element of, you know, emotion or whatever in it. And, you know, they might express that in other ways. But, um, you know, I think like the human spirit is like, such a weird thing and it expresses itself in all kinds of different ways and um you know art and and literature and poetry and whatever they were they were and are um i guess methods of expressing that human spirit and, you know, I, I would imagine our, over the evolution of our time on this planet, our, our experiences have probably been largely the same in the outdoors. Um, and the feelings that come along with those experiences probably largely the same, but our tools and our methods, um, you know, and our technologies have evolved, but our biology hasn't really evolved. So we're still having the same experiences. We're just like, we're always finding new ways to, to share them. So makes me think of um, the other day, I saw an article about um, a recent discovery of a cave painting that's, you know, the newest one that they're calling the oldest one I'm sure find old <laughs> until next year as time goes on but uh, yeah <laughs> the the newest oldest one um was this cave painting of um it was done by hunters and it was a painting of a wild boar with the outlines of the hands you know sprayed next to it and I can't remember how old it was. I don't remember where it was either, but obviously very old. Um, and I sent this to uh, a person that I know who just finished writing a book about wild hogs in North America. And he just loved it, you know? Um, he was so fascinated by it, as was I. And yeah, I think it's just like, we're, we're still humans, like having these experiences and we share them in, in different ways, but like, you know, we can still look at a cave painting from thousands of years ago and it still resonates with us as, as people. Um, so, yeah. And sort of, important. and it sort of proves your point, right? That even, even thousands and thousands of years ago, somebody was trying to record their experience. Yeah in nature and put it on a wall which is yeah, yeah exactly it, it, it's all it's almost like we intended to make that point i love when that happens um, <laughs> um cool well we're coming up just about on the half hour mark here which is usually where i like to wrap that up but i i always kind of end with asking guests about sort of one really kind of important experience in the outdoors that has always stuck with them. It's, it doesn't have to be serious. We've had some pretty interesting, strange ones happen, but um, whatever is the first thing that comes to your mind, go for it. Okay, well, this is one that 
I actually want your like professional opinion on because you might Uh have some insight and I've asked I've told like every (laughs) I've told like every biologist naturalist like everybody that I know about this and everybody's just kind of like scratching their head about it and maybe that's how it's supposed to be and maybe I should just leave it as a mystery but I like to get different people's takes on it so um I had my mom come to visit for like a long weekend I think this was last October I think I I believe it was October and um you know she kind of she wanted to have like an immersive outdoor experience um and so you know I own quite a few acres here and so I made her a little campsite and you know had this whole weekend planned of doing outdoorsy things some of them work some of them fun some of them whatever anyways one of the elements was having her sleep outside by herself because that's something that she's not necessarily comfortable with. And part of when I'm, um, I, I think a big part of, uh, if, if I were to have to pinpoint like a goal of mine in my teaching is to kind of dispel the fear that people have of being outside, especially here in the Northeast where there is like literally nothing to be scared of in the way of like animals, you know what I mean? Like we are the apex predator. You don't have to be scared of anything. And we're so lucky for that. And like, you should totally embrace that. Like you can be totally comfortable. Like you are the top of the food chain. (laughs) And so in my goal of trying to make her feel comfortable in the outdoors, I felt it was important for her to sleep outside by herself. And so made her this campsite. So I, you know, she gets her tent set up, whatever, and then spends the night. And then I come up to see her in the morning with coffee and breakfast and she's still in her tent. (laughs) She opens her tent and she's like, something came and peed on my tent in the middle of the night, like right (laughs) next to my head. And I was like, no, no way. And I go around, sure enough, something had pissed on her tent right next to her head. (laughs) And so like, I take pictures of it, like I smell it, like I'm looking around, like I'm like, okay, how high is it? What kind of an animal was this? And... I couldn't believe she was right. And so anyways, we take down the tent. It reeks. It's wicked smelly. And um, no, no, we didn't take the tent down that night. It was the next night. Right. Okay. So anyways, we go about our day. And then that night we start a fire up at that campsite. And she's going to sleep up there again. And then I have her go up, make a fire. And then I come up with food, we're going to cook. And then a gray fox comes in, not all the way into the clearing of the campsite, but right at the tree line and just starts barking like crazy, like really aggressively growling, barking, 
but mm -hmm. like not charging, not coming, like definitely keeping a line of distance, but like very close and pretty aggressive ish, you know. Um, and we've got the fire going and there's two of us standing there just kind of like, I don't know what to do with this situation. Like one, I'm like, I've, I've never had a fox act this way with me. Um, and two, I'm like trying to keep my mom comfortable because the whole goal of this is to like <laughs> make her feel comfortable in the outdoors. And then my husband comes up and uh, well, so I was kind of like, you know, trying to be big and loud and like trying to get it to go away, but it was not backing down. And then he comes up, he's a rather large man and has a deeper voice than me. And the fox didn't immediately back down to him, but did eventually like slowly back off, but was still like barking all the way across the hill. And um, it didn't come back after that. Well, not in that not in that day or two um and it was not it wasn't denning season you know it it was late enough in the year where all the young would have been gone you know no family unit i looked around for signs of like something that it would have been territorial over and found nothing and i just i don't know why it acted that way <laughs> I think, I think you hit, hit it on the head earlier. I think you're better off just having the mystery. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's such a cool experience. And I think if you explained it, it wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be as fascinating anymore. Like it was like yeah. the bird, right? It's, it's talking about how much the bird weighs probably yeah. better to, yeah. Or Sasquatch peed on your mom's tent and the gray fox didn't yeah. like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those two. It could only be one of those two. Okay. I like that. We'll go with yeah. that. I won't tell cool. her that. But. Oh, yeah. Probably not a good plan if she was just starting to get comfortable in the woods. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, Jenna. This was, a, this was a blast. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm sure uh, we'll link to all the show notes or we'll link to everything we talked about in the show notes and all of you out in podcast land can check out Jenna's website and all the cool stuff that she's doing as well as anything else that we mentioned. Um, do you got anything, anything left before we go? Um, no, I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to the school of the forest podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I hope you share it with a few friends. If you did like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other of the major podcast hosting platforms. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about School of the Forest programs, please check us out at schooloftheforest.com and get in touch with us at any of the contact information you'll find on that site. Thanks, 